Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Peter Harrison, Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. He is best known for his writings on religion and the origins of modern science. So Peter, how would you describe science as it's kind of done in the West? Okay. So to speak. Sure. Well, I guess we understand science to be the, the systematic exploration of the natural world. Uh, and that in the West is done in a variety of different ways. And in fact, if you look at the buildings around this great yeah. court that we're yeah. walking here, we've just come out of a building called the Geology Building. There's a physics building coming up, then biology and chemistry back there. So the sciences are actually divided into different domains. And one of the important things I think to remember about the sciences is that they have quite different methods. Uh, so the idea that there's a unified scientific method is a bit of a myth really. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, in biology, evolutionary biology looks at the past, so it tends to be historical. Physics, which we're just coming up to, tends to be more mathematical and experimental. So we have a family of activities that study the natural world, but they do it in a variety of, of different ways. But one of the distinctive things about modern science, I think, and again, it's exemplified in the fact that we're walking around this beautiful university campus, is that it's big business. Uh, it's a major activity that's conducted at universities with many uh, thousands of people involved at this university and, and, and other, other places around the world. So it's become a central part of Western yeah. society and civilization. Where, where did it rise? Where did science kind of, as we know it, in that complexity you've just talked about, where did it kind of have its genesis? Well, that's a good question, and historians have a number of answers to it. Yep. And, and, and there are three phases, I think, we could yep. speak about that are important. We can go back to ancient Greece, and the ancient Greeks started to ask systematic questions about, you know, how does the world come to be the way it is? What are the basic fundamental principles that underlie the appearances that we see? And that was a really key thing. And that version of Greek science went on for a thousand, uh, two thousand years. And then in the 17th century, we have what's called the scientific revolution. And that really was a reaction against Greek science and a move to an experimental approach to science. That was a key distinctive thing. But it's at that stage also where we have uh, arguments that science needs to be a corporate activity rather than an individual one. We need to have lots of people involved. It needs to be long-term and cumulative, so we accumulate knowledge and theories over a long period of time and it needs to be something that has institutional support. Right. So at the time that could be uh, noblemen or the king supporting scientific activity and clearly in our own time uh, it's the government that supports right. the right. bulk of uh, the scientific activity. Yep. And what was the third? Oh, now the third one is the 19th century and it's the 19th century when, when science moves into the universities in a major way uh, and interestingly the, science, the, the 19th century is the period where we get uh, the term scientist invented for the first mm -hmm. time and also it's at that time when the disciplines are, as I said, chemistry, biology, physics, uh, geology come to be grouped together as discrete and distinct from what we would now call the humanities. Okay. And up until that period, the humanities was uh, 
the main game in town yep. in the universities and uh, the sciences were the poorer relations but there were much stronger connections between the sciences and the humanities until the 19th century when we get an increasing specialisation. Yep. So if we're going back to the 17th century and that rise of science kind of as we, as we know it, what were the people who first started like? Well, the people who first started the, the, the science were, were regarded as philosophers at the time. They were called natural philosophers who studied the philosophy of nature. And that goes back to the issue that I was talking about, about how the humanities and the sciences were much more closely connected. Um, but, but the question we have to ask, I think, about the 17th century is what, what was distinctive about that period? that gave rise to science in a way that really happened nowhere else, mm. in no other culture and at no other time. And my argument would be that there are specific elements to do with the Christian tradition that are important in precipitating uh, the emergence of modern science as we know it. And so, of course, it's, in a sense, it's an obvious point to make, but the vast bulk of people involved in uh, the emergence of early modern science or modern science in the 17th century uh, were Christian believers, and for a number of them, uh, Christian theological principles were important to uh, the underpinning and the motivation of their scientific Now, activities. a lot of people would be really surprised to hear that, because right now, which is what we're going to explore, that there's a big divide, it seems, between those with religious belief and those who are kind of scientists. It's almost like you can't be the same, but it's yeah. intriguing that basically the, the roots of science in, in the 17th century was actually out of people of faith. That's right. And it, so it's not merely the case that these were people of faith, but that their faith actually informed the way they pursued science and the sorts of assumptions they thought that were necessary to, to doing good science. Uh, and, and many of them were engaged not merely in scientific activities, but also in what we call theological speculation. So Isaac Newton, who's perhaps the most famous scientist ever, wrote much more on theological topics than he did on scientific topics. And you know, one historian has remarked that you know Newton was a 17th-century theologian who wrote a few small works <laughs> on science. Yeah. But you know, you, you get the idea that that uh, there was at the time no conception of a conflict between uh, fundamental religious beliefs and scientific beliefs. On the contrary, uh, they were regarded as mutually. Uh, supportive. Why, why do you think, therefore, that it started kind of in the Christian European West in a way that it didn't in China? Because uh, the Chinese developed brilliant concepts and ideas, didn't they? Yes, yes. And this is, this is a famous question in the history of science. It's called the Needham question. Why science in the West and not anywhere else? And I think there are two schools of thought on this, and I, let me give you the one I think is right. No, I'll tell you them both. <laughs> the two schools of thought, there was something missing in other cultures that right. meant that science wouldn't emerge. And the assumption behind that is that science is a kind of obvious thing that every culture will come to eventually if it's left to evolve properly. But the other way of thinking about it is to say, no, science is really something quite special. And it's, it's, it requires a particular combination of cultural ingredients to make science come about. And the West just happened to have that particular set of ingredients that together made modern science possible. 
And one, again, as I've argued already, one key element of that, one distinctive thing about the West is this long Judeo-Christian tradition about beliefs in uh, the uniformity of nature, but in the 17th century also beliefs about why an experimental approach to the natural world was necessary. So it's, it's almost like rather than faith getting in the road of science, there was a sense of Christian faith and belief was a foundation on which it was built. That's right. So that, so that we do tend today often to assume that science and religion are in conflict and therefore that historically religious faith would have been an impediment to science and there are specific historical instances that seem to suggest that. But in fact if we look very carefully what we find is that for the bulk of our 17th century scientists who were the key pioneers in an emerging modern science, not merely was there no conflict, but in fact that Christian assumptions and motivations were an integral part of the scientific enterprise. One of the narratives that's often talked about about that period is actually the case of Galileo. Yeah. Like the idea that he was the scientist, saw the change with the earth revolving around the sun and it was the church because they believed in the Bible that said that's not true. What, how do you see that? Yeah. Well, the Galileo story is, is, is one of the classic exemplary historical instances of science-religion conflict. It's one of the best known, most worked over historical episodes by historians of science. They know it really well, and they know that that story is completely wrong. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and it's completely wrong for a number of reasons. But look, the bottom line, I think, is, um, is this a science and religion conflict, one? And two, is it typical of the way the Catholic Church dealt with science at the time. So to take the second question first, the Catholic Church was the most significant sponsor of astronomical research for something like four or five hundred years in the middle of which the Galileo affair takes wow. place. Yes. So the idea that the Catholic Church is somehow opposed to science is, is deeply mistaken. Was it a science and religion conflict? No, essentially it was a conflict between two competing scientific theories. Uh, Copernicus had proposed an Earth-centred uh, sorry, a sun-centred uh, yep. system some 50 or 60 years before Galileo came on the scene. It didn't generate particularly much controversy. Galileo had telescopic evidence that he thought supported the view, and indeed it did to some extent, but there was a strong body of scientific evidence also against the idea that the Earth okay. was in motion around the sun. Uh, and I won't go into details, but still a parallax, for example, was one scientific piece of scientific evidence. And there was other evidence from physics, for example, we don't seem to be hurtling through space at thousands of right. miles an hour. Right. And the physics at the time couldn't explain how the Earth could possibly be in motion. But the bottom line is the Galileo affair is a very complex and complicated one, but it wasn't a clear-cut case of conflict mm. between science and religion, and it certainly wasn't typical of Catholicism that they would be opposed to right. science. enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview and transform beliefs, attitudes and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. Where did that divide start? Where did the divide start where it was kind of religion over here and science diametrically opposed to it? Yeah. Well, I think the 19th century is a, is a key period for this. And there are two key works produced that talk about a history of conflict between science and religion. And, and these two books, uh, respectively by a guy called John Draper and Andrew Dixon White, talk about science and religion conflict uh, were um, key texts in 
uh, informing this view about science and religion conflict. But I think the other thing that we can say happening in the background, we've got evolutionary theory, which has religious implications that some of which are not entirely welcome. So evolutionary theory, although it had Christian supporters and scientific opponents, it also had a significant reaction uh, from the Christian community. Now, that uh, scientific episode, the, the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, in the early 20th century in America yes. uh, developed considerable opposition. And so, uh, in, you know, at the time of its publication, controversial, yes, but the real conflict arose for the first time in the 20th century with the emergence of uh, creationism, or scientific creationism and flood geology. And so there's a very interest, interesting story about how evolution came to take over or to join uh, Galileo yes. as part of this story about a perennial and inevitable conflict between science and religion. So Peter, in this conflict between science and religion and, and being a person of faith yourself, how do you deal with that conflict? Hmm. Look, to me, to me, fundamentally, there is no genuine conflict. I think, you know, science tells us stories about how the world is. Science is actually a moving target. It's, it's constantly changing. Uh, but faith is more about values, uh, the purpose of our existence, why we're here. And those are fundamental questions that you can't have uh, changing constantly as different things are discovered. So they're really two quite distinct realms for me. One is about the world and what science provides us with this fantastic information and great technology and that's that's yep. a really good thing. It does many good things but science doesn't answer the fundamental questions that from in my way of thinking are the most important questions. So, so then how do you read the Bible? Okay, in a sense I read the Bible much as it's been read throughout the tradition of the Christian church, which is, which is to say that the, the, the Bible is a guide to precisely the kinds of questions that I've said are important. Why are we here? What's the purpose of our existence? Uh, what hope do we have for the future? Where do our values come from? The kinds of questions that science doesn't answer. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it's important also to understand that the Bible is not primarily intended to answer the questions that science does in fact answer. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not there to tell us about particular theories about the world, although I think some of those are implicit mm -hmm. in the biblical narratives, but it's important not to confuse the worldviews that we find uh, contained in some of the biblical stories, to confuse that with the central message, which is about purpose, meaning and value. So how then would you answer somebody who said, well, I believe in evolution and so therefore I can't believe the Bible? Well, I think ever since Darwin published his theory of evolution, there have been Christians who've had no problem with, with uh, evolutionary theory, and in essence, I'm one of them. I don't think that evolution, evolutionary theory does make us ask serious questions, because uh, there are questions about meaning and purpose that evolution does actually seem to have some implications for. And amongst the sciences, I think it's quite special and unique in that respect. But ultimately, I don't think that, that there's anything in evolutionary theory that's a challenge to the fundamental uh, beliefs uh, of Christianity. So Peter, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. So for you personally, how has Jesus been the game changer? Well, Carl, I think when Jesus appears on the scene in the first century, he has a radical new message 
he preaches a set of values and a, a view about uh, the meaning of life and the end times that it's quite unique and that gives rise to a whole series of institutions that really are fundamental to where the world is today. One of them is this university that we're looking at. Universities are founded by the Christian church. There are values and legal systems and whole sets of assumptions really that arise from those events and that historical person who appeared on the scene in the very first century. So really uh, Jesus is crucial to uh, the kind of world we live in with uh, in the West here with the values and institutions that it has. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax deductible and non-tax deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Oh,